Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I don't just believe shit I hear on podcasts, and you shouldn't either. Be skeptical, look into things for yourself, and let me know if you find I may have been wrong about something. You can do that at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Please also be aware that I swear. It's just how I talk, and I'm not here to be fake, so the cuss words will fly, particularly when I'm excited or frustrated. So listener discretion is advised. episode 67 of Living Through Extinction, a short to the point podcast with science, skepticism, environment, wildlife, and ways we as people can be better for future generations. For today, I continued my look into healthcare biases, and was I ever wrong? I thought that the most data available was in the area of male versus female, but once I really got into it, the information available for the disparities between races is beyond anything I expected. I'm glad the studies have been and are being done, I just wish they were easier to come across. Also on today's episode, I talk about fake everything detectors, magpies that help remove trackers from each other, and communicating through brainwave activity. If you've joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome! I hope you find it both fun and informative. I always knew that with a skeptical segment, I would eventually have to cover the whole fake bomb detector thing. It's just so depressing how government bodies spent billions of dollars on these useless products. And lives were lost because people truly believed that if there were a bomb, this special dowsing rod would detect it. If there is no scientifically explainable way for how a product works, it probably doesn't. If the only explanations are things pulled from known woo, it's gonna be bullshit. Yet governments have fallen for it. The Quadro Tracker was the first of its kind. It was deemed a fraud in the US in the 90s, and those responsible for its sale were charged. Their device began as basically a dowsing rod for golf balls. It was a golf ball finder with nothing more than a loose antenna sticking out that would wobble from side to side. There were no mechanics enclosed whatsoever. The ideomotor effect is well known and often discussed in skeptical communities. Ouija boards, pendulum swinging, dowsing rods, these are all things that make use of the ideomotor effect. The natural micro-movements of the person holding the bomb detector would cause the loosely fit antenna to move from side to side as though it was searching for something. They may have gone away with it too, except they then decided to repackage the golf ball finder and market it as a device that could find anything. They literally took the same device and packaged it differently and charged thousands of dollars more for it. It could supposedly detect Cocaine, heroin, gunpowder, dynamite, you name it. Hold the device and follow the loosely swinging antenna to find out if this product is near you. How did it supposedly work? This is going to sound so ridiculous if you're not already familiar with the story. How could anyone ever fall for such obvious bullshit? The device came with special cards. The card for the item you were trying to detect would be inserted into the device, and then the device would supposedly tune into that item. How did these cards work? I promise I am not making this up. A photocopy would be taken of a Polaroid picture of the item to be detected. So a photocopy of a Polaroid of a pile of cocaine, for example. The picture on the photocopy is then cut out and pasted between two pieces of plastic 
which then become the card for detecting that item. The card would then be inserted into the machine, quotation marks, machine, and it would supposedly read the photographs and determine the pictured item's frequencies or what the fuck ever bullshit. I had such a hard time believing anyone ever bought into this when I first learned about it. Take a picture of gunpowder, take a photocopy of the picture, put the cut-up photo between cards, and now it can detect gunpowder. Who believes this shit? A British company created a similar version called ADE-651. They claimed that it would detect bombs, guns, ammunition, drugs, truffles, human bodies, ivory, and even bank notes. Holy facepalm. Bank notes. People believed that it could detect banknotes. What in the banknotes did they think it was detecting exactly? Oh my gosh, I just can't sometimes. They also claimed that it would detect these things through walls, underwater, through lead, through concrete, even hidden in corpses. Oh, and of course it could bypass all known attempts to conceal a product. And guess how the cards for this device were programmed? Fuck. For real, y'all. The instructions were to put a card in a jar with the item you want the card to detect for one week. While in the jar, the card will be programmed with the frequency of that particular explosive or whatever you put in there. When the card is then inserted into the device, it will tune into the frequency of that substance the card was enclosed with. I know. This is also completely unreasonable. I don't blame you if you think I'm making it all up. It's fucking absurd. The device would supposedly work on the principle of electrostatic magnetic ion attraction, whatever the fuck that's supposed to be. Sounded sciencey enough for a whole lot of important people, I guess. Obviously not skeptics or critical thinkers. Oh, and they claim that the reason they never needed to be plugged in or have batteries charged was that the device is powered only from the static electricity given off by the user. This should have been another huge clue as to the plausibility of these products but people still bought into it. Again, we are talking about nothing more than a dowsing rod. They cost almost nothing to put together, just an elaborate craft project, really, and they sold them for $60,000 US each. These were purchased and widely used in the Middle East. Britain eventually saw what was happening and banned the export of these supposed bomb detectors in 2010. They also sentenced the inventor to 10 years in jail for fraud but not before units had been sold to 20 countries in the Middle East and Asia. The Iraqi government spent 52 million pounds on these things, and they more than once made people feel safe when there were really bombs present, costing lives. In 2010, a statement from the Security and Defense Committee said, quote, This company not only caused grave and massive losses of funds, but caused grave and massive losses of the lives of innocent Iraqi civilians by the hundreds and thousands from attacks that we thought we were immune to because we have this device." Unquote. I agree the company is at fault, but isn't the government at fault too for spending that kind of money and taking those kinds of promises at face value? Never thought to buy just one and open it up even? The way they work makes absolutely no sense. And they spent that much money on them without trying to figure out if they were legit. I feel like governments who fell for it have to take some responsibility, right? Some of the other nations who wasted way too much money on these fake devices were Pakistan, Belgium, Lebanon, 
Algeria, Bangladesh, Georgia, India, Iran, Kenya, Qatar, Romania, Tunisia, Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Vietnam. Back in 2008, James Randi called it, quote, a useless quack device which cannot perform any function other than separating naive persons from their money. It's a fake, a scam, a swindle, and a blatant fraud. Prove me wrong and take the million dollars, unquote. Of course, referring to the million dollar challenge. He knew this was all based on woo immediately. There were so many red flags. I don't think I will ever understand how this got past governments. There is no such thing as a detector for anything. Just like there's no such thing as a single item which will cure everything. How a nation could spend the kind of money these ones did on an item like this and never open it up to make sure they were buying what they thought they were buying? Some governments need to be more skeptical, damn it. This one is pretty cool. Australian magpies are at risk. That's not what's cool, but they are at risk, and this is mainly due to warming temperatures. So scientists prepared to do a study on them to see what could be learned about their movements and social dynamics with the goal of using what they learned to help preserve the population. Scientists fit tiny tracking devices less than one gram in weight each to special tiny little backpacks constructed for the birds. They had five to use in this pilot study. So a feeding area was set up and local magpies began to frequent the location. Using five established returning visitors, the devices were attached and the birds were let go. When the birds would return to feed, these devices would recharge remotely for as long as they remain in the feeding area, allowing for continued use. The researchers were looking forward to testing out these new, more durable and remotely rechargeable devices. Things didn't go quite as planned, however. In fact, the experiment was a complete failure. Why? Well, less than 10 minutes after they finished fitting the fifth tracker to the fifth bird, they observed an untracked bird, an adult female, using her bill to try and remove the harness of one of their tracked birds. They claimed that most of the harnesses had been removed within hours, and the final one had been removed by the third day. They had planned to track their movements for months, so this kind of shut that whole thing down. They certainly don't consider it a loss, though, because this discovery is also a very interesting and exciting thing. What they refer to as cooperative rescue behavior is supposed to be very rare in birds. When the researchers went in search of other recordings of such things, the only thing they found was about the Seychelles warblers, who had been observed helping to release others of their social group when they would become stuck in bisonia seed clusters. While it was already known that Australian magpies were intelligent and social creatures, this evidence of altruistic behavior, where one helps another for nothing in return, is something big. They may have lost some very expensive equipment, and the originally planned study may have failed. But this was still an amazing discovery, and it's been published in Australian Field Ornithology. One more biases in healthcare episode today, then I'm going to do one or two other topics before picking it up again. After all, the next episode's in September, and September is Sexual Health Awareness Month. So I'll be talking about vaginas on that one, and may choose a sexual health-based topic for the next one as well. Don't know yet. The references for this segment are going to look pretty long, but that's just because I wanted to include the studies I looked at, which are online PDFs with long, weird addresses. Anyway, shit, I'm bad for that. I really want to stop using anyway as a way to move on when talking. That's an area I absolutely need to work on. That and my use of and when it's not necessary. Today's review of biases in healthcare is focused on racial-based biases, 
While these occur all over the world, most studies on these close to home seem to have taken place in the US, so there'll be a lot of US numbers provided. But we do have the same issues here in Canada, which I'll present evidence of towards the end of this segment. There are two categories that all racial-based bias can be put under. Conscious or explicit, and unconscious or implicit. Most studies to date have been based on explicit biases. These are deliberate thoughts and feelings that a person can think about and make conscious reports about, if they're honest. Where there is a lack of study, I don't mean none, there are studies, but there are way fewer that look at implicit biases, which are unconscious. Many very good people still have implicit biases outside of their conscious awareness. These are very difficult to acknowledge and control, and those who are able to reflect upon themselves in these areas inevitably become better people. Some of the results of these biases? Let's start with children. According to Frontiers in Pediatrics, emergency doctors are less likely to classify Black and Latinx children as requiring emergency care compared with white or Asian children, presenting with the same symptoms. They are also less likely to admit Black or Latinx children to the hospital after an ER visit than they are with white or Asian children presenting similarly. And they are also less likely to order blood tests, CT scans, or x-rays for Black or Latinx or Asian children than they are for white, again, with comparable symptoms. A 2005 report from the Institute of Medicine, which is a not-for-profit, non-government entity, reported that, quote, the poverty in which Black people disproportionately live cannot account for the fact that black people are sicker and have shorter lifespans than their white complements." Unquote. I have a note here that uh, the Institute of Medicine is now called the National Academy of Medicine. They found that, quote, racial and ethnic minorities receive lower quality health care than white people, even when insurance status, income, age, and severity of conditions are comparable. They found that minorities are less likely than whites to be given appropriate cardiac care or to receive kidney dialysis or transplants. And they are also less likely to receive the best treatments for strokes, cancers, and AIDS. The Academy calls it an uncomfortable reality that some people in the United States are more likely to die from cancer, heart disease, or diabetes due to their race or ethnicity and not lack of access to health care. That's sad. It was also found that people of color were less likely than white people to receive effective treatments even after having controlled for class, health behaviors, comorbidities, and access to insurance and health care. In 2015, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Resources found numerous examples of health inequity for people of color in the U.S. There is a lower average life expectancy for black males and females than for white. Black males have a higher blood pressure by 12% than their white counterparts of the same age. Black females have a higher blood pressure by 16% than their white counterparts of the same age. There were some issues that originated from outside of the healthcare system, such as where people live in their financial situations. In 2014, about 35% of Latinx adults could not access health insurance and 20% of black adults could not access health insurance, compared to 10% of white and Asian adults. And don't forget, if someone seeks medical help in the U.S., they have to pay for that. That's just something that I have no comprehension of. I don't know if I ever would have been able to have a kid if I had to pay for medical care. Jesus Christ, never mind two. In 2016, a study was done of white medical students, and the results are rather disturbing. 
73% of them held at least one false belief about biological differences between races. This is 2016. Things like black people have a higher pain tolerance than white people do, as well as having thicker skin and stronger immune systems. It's beliefs like this that make it so that black children with appendicitis are less likely to receive appropriate pain medication than white children. Really fucked up. And the same showed to be true of adults with recurring cancers. Black people were less likely to receive appropriate pain medication than white in these cases as well. This is the shit that happens when the truth doesn't matter and is overridden by centuries-old disproven bigoted beliefs that are usually passed from white parents to white children but are so pushed onto society that even some minorities get sucked in by these myths. A study of 400 hospitals across the U.S. revealed that black people with heart disease were receiving older, cheaper, more conservative care than white folks presenting the same. They were less likely to receive coronary bypass operations or angiography, and they were being discharged from the hospital sooner after having the same surgeries as their white counterparts. It also showed that when it came to breast cancer, black women were less likely to be offered radiation therapy along with a mastectomy. Let me be clear, there's no physical reason why white women need radiation after a mastectomy and black women don't. This is really fucked up. Among these 400 hospitals, black patients were also more likely to be given amputation and more likely to be treated with antipsychotics when they are bipolar, which in case you're not aware is very bad. There's evidence that antipsychotics can cause long-term negative effects and are absolutely not effective for bipolar disorder. Again, kind of fucked up. There are even racial-based biases in healthcare algorithms. There was a decision-making software being used in hospitals across the U.S. that appeared to be showing very strong biases. Millions of black people ended up being affected by this. Black people with complex medical needs were less likely than equally ill white people to be referred for proper care. This is a system that both hospitals and insurers were using to manage care for two hundred million people a year, and it was systematically discriminating against black people. A review of the software was done and the results were published on October 24th, 2019 in Science. What they found was that when people self-ID'd as black, they were generally assigned lower risk scores than equally sick white people. This resulted in black people being less likely to be referred for better care. In order for a black person to be referred for the same care as a white person, they had to be a whole lot sicker than the white person. Where about 46% of these black patients should have been referred for care if rated on equal levels as white people, only 17.7% actually were. Do you see the problem here? Now, I have to give kudos to the software developers. When they heard about this report, they were skeptical, but they were not defensive about it. They conducted their own analysis and came up with the exact same results. And they were open and public about it. Optum of Eden Prairie in Minnesota didn't just admit this information about their software was correct. They got together with the initial research team who brought it to their attention in order to work together to fix it. The fact that this company is showing appreciation for having this major flaw divulge and actively working to fix it shows huge integrity. 
Two of the things that they have come up with are increasing the diversity of people who help to put these programs together and to have developers trained about social and historical context of the people who visit healthcare buildings. I have so much respect for a company that's ready to work to be better like that. Huge hearts to them. I mentioned earlier that there are unfortunately not a lot of studies in the implicit bias area. One that I found compelling was where physicians were given implicit association tests. These measure a person's implicit biases in such a simple, yet when you think about it, perfect way. Participants are linking images of black and white people with pleasant and unpleasant words and given mere moments to make these decisions. If a person doesn't go with their first instinct, if they consider for even a moment, then they'll have missed that one. It's not a flawless test, as I can see if someone went in with knowledge of how the test worked ahead of time and had certain mental skills, they could manipulate the outcome as desired. There will always be someone who can figure something out somehow. But overall, I like this method. For the great majority of people, it would be a very good indicator of implicit biases. I wish I could take one myself. These unconscious beliefs are leading to the unintentional, harmful medical decisions when it comes to people of color. And this is where the disparity in equity in lifespans and other health-related statuses between white people and people of color comes from. A great deal of it is not deliberate, but it's still harmful. I think the best thing a person could do is work to identify their own unconscious biases and acknowledge and fix them. The people who cannot admit they are flawed are the ones who will never be better. It is a myth that ill health, disease, injury, and death are often one's own fault. The opposite is actually more often true. Yet many Canadians still hold this outdated, ignorant belief. Canadians, especially white well-off ones, have very little comprehension of social determinants of health and the role colonization has played. This outdated way of thinking leads to biases and discrimination in our systems. The health disparities between Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people is absolutely rooted in Canada's colonial history. Hell, the colonizers started with bringing in diseases that ultimately negatively affected entire communities of Indigenous people. Then they were rounded up and confined. Then their children were taken and kept in atrocious conditions. This shit is an ancient history. I have relatives living today who were in these fucking schools. So if you ignorantly believe that this shit is over and done with, fuck you. The innate racism in our healthcare systems have resulted from colonization. I want to be clear here that none of the stories I'm about to share are rare. Indigenous Black and South Asians made up our largest proportions of COVID-19 cases, and so it makes sense that these groups would also have higher rates of long COVID. Yet many are having to fight with their doctors to take the possibility that their symptoms might be related to long COVID seriously. One black woman who was sure she was having long COVID symptoms and who should have been taken seriously as she is in one of the groups more likely to present with it had to convince her doctors that her heart issues were not due to coke. You heard that right. This woman was a non-drug user, by the way. I'm sure this assumption made about her was very upsetting. Instances like this can also deter people from seeking the help they need in the future, which also leads to the higher mortality rates among these groups. Would you want to go back to see a doctor who, when presented with your heart problems, accused you of doing cocaine? This particular case I'm talking about occurred in Toronto, but it's not the only one out there. There are plenty of minorities being doubted and stereotyped when presenting with long COVID symptoms. And remember, these are the folks it's most likely to be seen in. What the fuck, right? 
In 2020, an Atikamikwa woman in Quebec who lay dying in her hospital bed was submitted to the most atrocious of racist taunts by healthcare staff there. She managed to record some of it before she passed, and it was really terrible. A nurse and orderly made the most dismissing, degrading comments towards her as she lay there dying. This incident was extremely disgusting. And this is just one caught on video. Imagine how prevalent it must actually be. Here in friendly Manitoba, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of shit I love about Manitoba, but the ignorant racist mindsets in small towns is not one of them. And a lot of those people eventually come to the city where they continue their racist ways and do harm in our emergency rooms and hospitals. Brian Sinclair passed away in the emergency room of the Winnipeg Health Science Center in 2008. He had been to his primary clinic, but a doctor there referred him to the HSC emergency, which was just down the street. When he arrived in his wheelchair, he was ignored and unattended for 34 hours when he passed from what would have been a treatable infection. And finally, one more devastating case from BC. An indigenous woman who fell and hit her head had a relative bring her to emergency and the healthcare staff there made the assumption that this injured woman was really just drunk or on something. They made this assumption, ignoring the explanation of the accident. By the time they realized that they might be wrong and started to take the injury seriously, it was too fucking late. This person had been enduring a brain bleed, and that's the first thing that should have been thought of when told that she had hit her head badly. She had someone with her who told them what happened. This death is absolutely due to racism. A white person would have immediately been sent off for the appropriate tests and treatment. A white person would not have died. That is not okay. The only overall answer is to include social and historical teachings in all medical fields of study. But if people in these fields really care, they can take steps to make sure that they are less likely to be a part of the problem. It's not easy to look inside oneself sometimes, but it can be very important to identify these flaws that we all have. Once we become conscious and acknowledge them, that's when we have our best chances of overcoming them and becoming better people overall. So while this is all very cool and offers all sorts of hope, I'd like to caveat with this. This is just one patient. One patient does not a study make, but here are the claims being made at this time, and if they turn out to be legit, it's going to be amazing for so many people someday. What I'm talking about here is a brain-computer interface. A person with ALS had reached the point where communication was only able to occur through eye movement. Using this eye movement, they were able to spell out words and express their wants and needs. It was understood, however, that the control of their eyes would not last so while they were still able to move them, some researchers explained that they wanted to see if they could teach them to communicate with their brain alone. They gave consent to be set up with brain implants when the time came that they lost the ability to move their eyes. And that's what was done. Their brain was implanted with microelectrodes. They would try to affect them with their thoughts and a nearby computer reading their brain activity in real time would show changes when they changed their brain signals. It took 86 days of trying for them to finally try the method that worked. The method is called auditory neurofeedback. 
The patient learned how to hit specific notes on the monitor by increasing or decreasing their neural activity. Increasing the neural activity, and hence increasing the firing rate of the neurons, caused a higher pitched tone to come through. Decreasing neural activity, hence decreasing the firing rate of neurons, caused a lower tone to come through. So they began with a high tone meaning yes and a low tone meaning no. From there, they were able to start spelling out words just as they had with their eyes, so were once again able to communicate their wants and needs. Yes, it was only about one word per minute, but just imagine not being able to communicate anything and then suddenly having access to this tool. It must be freeing in a way. They've been able to ask to have their head turned so they could see in the direction they want. They were able to voice gratitude to their family for taking care of them. And in my eyes, the most exciting. They were able to request for music to be played. I don't know about you all, but if all I could do was see and hear, music would be a huge deal to me. I'd have my family making me playlists for sure. This work was published in Nature Communication. But again, just so I'm clear, this is one person. I truly hope that it does turn out to be repeatable by other researchers on other patients. It's very exciting and very interesting, but as a skeptic, at this time I can't call it established science. That's all I have for today. Thank you so much for joining me. May your health and sanity be replenished daily. I would like to express my eternal gratitude to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project more than two years ago. I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer on Instagram or playing live with Toad Turner. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Facebook at Toad Turner The Chronicles, Instagram at Prairie Soul Music, or see him playing live with Toad Turner. And thank you to my family who puts up with me hiding in my bedroom, reading articles, and making notes for hours on end so I can actually do this podcast thing, because it keeps me constantly learning, which is what I've always loved. I hope you will join me again in two weeks for episode 68 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player, or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Twitter. There's also a Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias. 